Wars, the copyrighted program created by Rio Grande. Two hundred pounds zero dollars, calling all cars, attention all cars, broadcast two hundred ninety-two in the driving list of persons. Be on the lookout for Carl Harvey. This is on his home for two days. Maybe murdered. That's all. Road Higher performance at lower cost. Your search is ended. For the radically new and different all purpose Rio Grande that passes twice as many vital ingredients as are found in most ordinary gasoline is no farther away than the red and white Rio Grande station in your neighborhood. Many motor fuels are made with one main purpose in mind. Some emphasize the element of patient head gasoline for easy starting. Some stress straight run gasoline for highway performance. Others place the accent on crash gasoline alone for the start and stop driving in city traffic and mileage. Others call attention to stabilized gasoline for speedy acceleration. Some point to a poly gasoline content for anti-knock performance. And others boast of set to ethyl lead for maximum power. All of these ingredients, twice as many as the three found in ordinary fuel, are scientifically merged in Rio Grande's brand new cracked gasoline. That's what makes it the revolutionary, all-purpose motor fuel that powers the cars of the men who drive the most under all kinds of conditions. The men at the wheels of your police cars, ambulances, and other emergency equipment. Try a tank full tomorrow. And you'll agree with these difficult-to-please drivers of public-serving automobiles and tens of thousands of discriminating motors that the new, all-purpose real gun to crack deserves every word of its well-earned title. The most highly recommended gasoline of power and performance sold in the world. The story we are to hear tonight was taken from the facts supplied from the confidential files of the office of Sheriff James M. Plume of Tehama County. We have therefore asked Sheriff Plume to prepare a foreword for our program. It's a pleasure to join the scores of officers who have appeared on Calling All Cars and to add my voice to the steadily increasing chorus of those who make it their business to prove that they criminally inclined that crime is a losing proposition. It might be a good thing, and it uh, certainly would be an interesting pursuit, to go back of the criminal acts of the lawbreaker to find out what makes him a criminal. But the work of the average law enforcement officer is so great that he has little time to do other than bring the criminal into court, where his guilt can be determined and his punishment measured. In this work, he expects, and I'm proud to say, he usually gets the complete cooperation of other law enforcement officers. Tonight's story will serve as a model for that sort of cooperation that brings home to the criminal the truth of the statement that crime of any sort cannot pay. This was a bitterly cold winter evening during the open week of 1938 in the city of Red Bluff, California. In a small lunchroom, a tall, slender, and well-dressed young man was eating his meal leisurely, and suddenly a pretty brown-haired girl slipped into the seat beside him. Oh, would you mind terribly if I sat here a few minutes and talked to you? Oh, no, of course I wouldn't mind. Go right ahead. <laughs> I suppose this seems kind of funny to you. I mean, me just barging in and starting to talk this way. Oh, I wouldn't say that. I'm glad you did. I'm so 
I don't make a practice of talking to strange men, but you look like a right guy, and, well, you look kind of lonesome, too. I'm afraid you heard it right, Billy. That's just the part about being lonesome, anyway. But don't tell me a pretty kid like you hasn't got lots of boyfriends around here. Oh, none that I like very well. I was in a restaurant down on Main Street. A lot of fresh monkeys made passes at me, but I wouldn't go out with any of them. Not even if they sailed up to the counter in their own private yacht. <laughs> <laughs> yeah? Well, uh, what made you think I wouldn't turn out to be a fresh monkey, too? <laughs> I don't know. Women's intuition, maybe. <laughs> you say, uh... You work in a restaurant down on Main Street. Huh? Mm-hmm. The Denver Cafe, you know. No, I know where it is, yeah. I hardly ever eat there, well. No? Well, um, do you suppose you could get into the habit? Of eating at the Denver? Mm-hmm. <laughs> sure, now that I know that you're working there. But, uh, oh, the place is so good, what are you doing in this cafe? Isn't that a form of treason or something? <laughs> <laughs> no, not exactly. You see, my sister works here. I'm just waiting for her to get off duty. Oh, I see. Um, in case you might be interested, my name's Emily. Emily? Mm-hmm. Oh, that's a pretty name. But uh, isn't there any more to it? Uh-huh. Swanson. Emily Swanson. Oh, it's nice knowing you, Emily. Well, then, you have a name, too, haven't you? <laughs> yes. Seems to me I have. Uh, how would Claude David do? Well, that's as good as any. Better than most, maybe. Thanks. Not at all. And, uh... It's nice knowing you too, Claude. You know, you're a swell kid, Emily. I'd like to see a lot of you. Frankly, I was rather hoping you'd say that. Well, there's one hitch. Uh, see, I work for a sheep rancher down near Corning. Uh, the place is close to 20 miles south of here, and, well, I haven't got a car. That's going to make things a little tough. Oh, not necessarily. Well, what do you mean? Well, if you really want to see me once in a while, Claude, you don't have to worry about not having a car. You see, I have one. You have? Uh-huh. Oh, swell. Hey, look, Emily, you and I are going to go places and do things. Oh. You furnish the car, I'll furnish the money. We'll have some really grand times together, won't we? Uh, you bet we will, honey. It's been mighty lonesome living in that little trailer house down there all by myself, never going anywhere or seeing anybody. It's been lonesome for me, too. After I help out at home, it's all I can do to make the car payment. There's never anything left for a good time. Well, that's all over for both of us, Emily. Oh, really? You don't have to worry about money. I'll give you $5 a week towards wear and tear on the car and, well, maybe help with the payments besides. Claude, you don't have... That's the bargain, Emily. Take it or leave it. Oh, I knew you were a right guy, Claude. <laughs> Woman's intuition, you know. But here comes my sister. I've got to go now. When I see you? Uh, tomorrow night, 8 o'clock at the Denver Cafe. Is that all right? I'll see you. It's all right. Good night, Claude. Good night, Emily. <laughs> Thus began a friendship that ran smoothly enough for the first few weeks. But on the evening of March 8th began a series of events that would change the picture completely. Pedro Martinez, a sheep rancher who owned the property adjoining that of the rancher with whom Claude David worked, had gone early to bed after a hard day's work. Suddenly, the savage barking with his dogs outside the little trailer house awakened him while he slumbered. Oh, my God. Oh, what's the matter with this dog? Hello. Anybody home? <laughs> uh, who is it? What do you want? Trying to buy Joe Mendes' camp. You know him? Uh, Joe Mendes? Oh, sure. How much will you charge to take me there? Oh, I'll take you from knowing. If you're Joe's friend, you'll find a man. Wait a minute. They're going to open the door for you. 
The fellas come in town to see a show. Yeah, yeah, we saw a pretty good one, too. <laughs> Full of wisecracks and good-looking days. <laughs> <laughs> well, here you are, Pedro. A five and a ten, better right? Si, senor. One is not six. Good night, boys. Come in again. Okay. Now get into the car. No, not there. Move over into the driver's seat. You want me to drive? Boys, you're taking me back to my camp. Now turn over the door. You hear this, you know? Thanks. Get out of here. You should pull such a fool stunt as tell the sheriff about this. You'll be a dead man inside of 24 hours. Um. Don't forget that. On March 18th, ten days after the robbery of Pedro, Sheriff Jim Boom of Tahoma County received a telephone message at his office in Red Bluff. Yes? Yes? Accident of some kind? No, the main case of murder. When I got here, I found the case was out of my jurisdiction. The body was found just over the county line in your territory. I'll stick around and see you there. Okay, and thanks, Bailey. I'll be down as soon as I can make it. Forty-five minutes later, Sheriff Broom, accompanied by District Attorney Claire Engel, Coroner Arthur Fickett, and Deputy Klein, reached the scene of the crime, a distance of 30 miles from Red Bluff. It had been raining heavily for several days, and the ground was still drenched when the officers stepped from their car. Whoever killed this poor chap certainly didn't bother to move the body very far away from the edge of the road, Sheriff. No, it looks to me as if it had been taken for a ride and then robbed. Yeah. Look at those deep ruts over there at the edge of the field, Mr. Engel. The fellow who killed this man and left his body here sure had a tough time getting his car out of the mud. Terry Corner is trying to catch your eye, Sheriff. Maybe he wants you to look at something. Oh, uh, find anything of interest, Doc? Well, I wish you'd look at this body closely, Sheriff. It doesn't appear to me that only robbery was the motive here. Besides, boys, Dr. Wright, there's hatred and revenge back of this. No one would club a man to death with such savagery for any other reason. Any idea who the man is? Well, I don't think it's anyone I know. Maybe he's preserved the body on its back. Yeah. Good Lord. It's Carl Hardy. He's that young fellow who goes around the county selling drugs in small kitchen groceries. Yes, I know him, Sheriff. Now I'm beginning to see the light. You mean that's a trouble over the girl? Of course. You remember when her mother had him arrested, don't you? Certainly, but no one in her family could be capable of a crime like this, Mr. Angle. Besides, he never really had it coming. He truly loved that girl. Yes, I know. As I remember, the chief objection the girl's parents had to Carl was the difference in their ages. Carl's in his 30s somewhere, and I think the girl was 17. They built a lot of mountains out of that molehill, too. Well, it's a possible motive, of course, but I sincerely hope it's only... So do I. This is going to be a terrible blow to the girl, Sheriff. You see, I happen to know that she and Carl were secretly married in Yuma, Arizona, some little time ago. Is that right? Yeah. Well, no matter who's responsible for this young man's murder, they'll not get away with it, so help me. And Sheriff, see these badly swollen hands and the deep marks on the wrists? It looks to me as if they've been wired together. Mm-hmm. And that could be mighty painful to the victim, too, Doc. I should say it can. Well, I can't find anything in the man's pocket, sir. It looks like it might have been robbery after all. A battered head doesn't. Robbing the man could have been done for a blind. Now, if there's been a... Hmm. I don't know. What's this? Huh? Find something, Sheriff? Oh, I'm sure it did. Part of the murder weapon. What is it? Oh, it looks to me like a stock of a crab rifle. I just scuffed it out of the mud with a toe of my shoe. 
Seems to be pretty heavy, doesn't it? Mm, you better tell it. Craig's a bold action gun, and the stock is broken off just back of the loading mechanism. Well, it was heavy enough to do plenty of damage here. He's got a number of wounds. Any one of us could have caused death. I don't see a sign of a bullet hole anywhere on his body. Well, let's finish up here just as quickly as we can, boy. I want to get back to Red Bluff and start the wheels of this case moving. I'm going to find Carl Harder's murder or murderers if it's the last thing I do on earth. <laughs> I just dropped in to see if there's anything new on the Hardy case. Well, here's something that may interest you. An item in a little day book that Hardy carried with him. There's no direct bearing on the murder, of course, but it'll stand investigation. This item right here, Sheriff? Yes. March 14th, 1938. Sold Claude David, 45 automatic Colt, $20. What's that all about? Well, naturally, I don't know what David wanted the gun for, but I do know that he's an ex-convict under parole to me. The old leaves are not permitted to have guns in that possession. Who's this fellow David? Where's he come from? Well, from somewhere in the south originally, I think. He was sentenced to San Quentin in 1932 for picking up a storekeeper with a gun in Murdoch County. He swore in 37 and came to this county to work. So do you have any line on who might have killed Hardy? Well, I don't know, Mr. Engel, but I'm going to find out. As soon as Under Sheriff Moore gets back to the office, we're going to take a little ride and pay Claude David a visit. Isn't that the little trailer house where David lives, Sheriff? Yeah, that's right, Ed. That's David standing in the doorway. Pull up right in front there. Hello, Claude. Oh, good afternoon, Sheriff. Well, to come out this way and some work connected with Carl Hardy's murder, I just thought I'd drop by. Oh, I'm glad you did, Sheriff. Uh, that murder was a pretty terrible thing, wasn't it? Yes, pretty bad, Claude. Shame it had to happen. Yeah. I can't understand who'd want to do a thing like that to a nice fellow like Carl. Well, most of us can't. You knew Carl pretty well, didn't you? Well, I suppose so, in a way. Had he been out here lately? Why, yes, yes. He was out here the same evening he was killed. Is that so? Anything in particular he came to see you about? Well, yes. As I gave him a pup, and he came out to get it. Is that all he came out for? Yes, sir. He didn't come to collect for a gunny, soldier. Oh, no, sir. You're sure of that, Claude? Of course, Sheriff, because Carl never sold me a gun. Well, I hope you're telling me the truth. You know, it's back to San Quentin for you if you're caught with a gun. I know that, Sheriff. Honest, I'd rather die than go back to that place. Oh, I didn't buy a gun from Carl. From nobody else, either. Well, Claude, I just said I'd ask is all. Well, we better get going, Ed. See you later, Claude. I'm glad to stop by, Sheriff. Go on. Well, the boy tonight buying that gun probably enough. What do you think, Sheriff? I think he's a cockeyed liar. Without the gun, Claude David came to the sheriff's home with a request to change his place of employment. David's manner was nervous and shifted, and Sheriff Broome became half convinced that the youth might actually be Hardy's murderer. The following morning, Broome called the parole board and received instructions to hold David in connection with the gun episode. You've had a few days to think it over now, Claude. Have you got anything to say? Yes, I... I do want to tell you something, sir. Well, good. Let's have it. Well, when Hardy came out to my place that evening... A 1936 Buick sedan followed him. And when he drove off the road to park in front of my trailer house, the Buick stopped and waited for him. Then a man got out, and when Hardy left my place, this fellow made him stop his car. Yes? And what happened after that? Well, then another man got out of the Buick and walked over to Hardy's car. He got in the driver's seat, and the two men made Hardy get in between them. 
Hardy's car went west toward the old Corning Road, and the Buick went east toward Highway 99. What did these men look like? Well, one of them was blonde, about 19. The other was dark, about 23. What time did this happen, Claude? Between 6.30 and 7 o'clock. You know who these men were? No, but uh, another car went by them, and I think the man driving it did. Do you know who was in that car? Uh, yes, Joe Mendy, a sheepman out there. Well, thanks for the information, Claude, but uh, don't you think you'd better tell me about that gun now? Oh, I don't know nothing about any gun, Sheriff. All right, you can go back to your cell now. We'll check this other story. Just like I thought, eh? David says these men are just a pack of lies. Sure, are beginning to look that way. The distance from David's cabin to where he came to his car was stopped was too far for a person to be able to judge the age and complexion of anyone on the clearest of days. Yes, and David wants us to believe he could do it at 6.30 in the evening. On a cloudy evening at that. Oh, that must be Joe Mendes' place over there. Yes. Mm-hmm. We'll know more about this cock and bull story in a few minutes, I guess. Uh, wait, slow down here. The fellow's sending some sheep. Maybe that's Mendes. Okay, sir. You, members? I see it. What is it you want? Well, uh, come over here a minute. We're from the sheriff's office. Sheriff's office? Yes, we'd like to ask you a few questions. Oh, whatever you want to know. Can you tell me where your car was during the early evening of last March 17th, Mr. Mendez? March 17th, let's see. Oh, see, uh, my daughter, she drove to our home in Richfield that morning. And it wasn't out here again all day. I see. You know a sheep herder by the name of uh, Claude David? No, no, I don't. But there is something I think I'll tell you about it. Well, then don't hesitate to do it, Mr. Mendez. A couple of days ago, Pedro Martinez, who owns a sheep ranch near here, he came to my wife and told her a very strange story. We are close friends of Pedro's, and so I knew he would not lie. Besides, there were the marks on his wrist. Well, suppose you start at the beginning and tell the whole story in the proper order. You see, you see, of course, when Pedro first made my wife to swear that she would never repeat what he was about to tell her before he would say a word, he was very frightened. Frightened? At what? He was afraid Claude David was going to kill him. Claude David, huh? You see, one night after Pedro, he had gone to bed, his dogs woke him up with their barking. Well, as far as I'm concerned, Mr. Engel, there's no longer any question in my mind as to David's guilt in the Hardy case. The wrists of Pedro Martinez have been bound with wire. So are those of Carl Hardy. Now, two pairs of wired wrists in a single month doesn't leave any room for coincidence. I agree with you perfectly, Sheriff, but will a jury? Well, I'm not going to leave that to chance. I want an ironclad case against this murderer when he goes into court just as much as you do. Uh, Pedro Martinez and other witnesses are waiting outside. I'm going to confront them with a prisoner. Mind if I sit in? Of course not. Oh, uh, Mr. Martinez, uh, Mr. Phelps, will you uh, come in, please? I wish you would let me go come, senor. Oh, you have nothing to be afraid of, Martinez. If Claude David, he found out I've been killed, he would kill me for sure. Well, Claude David is not in a position where he can kill anyone right now. Mr. Engel, this is the man whom the prisoner tied up with a wire and then robbed. All right. He made you write out a check, didn't he? Si, senor. And I'm the man who cashed it for Pedro in my pool hall down Corning. 
Gentlemen, I'm going to have David brought in here so that you may identify him. No, 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 please, senor. Well, there's no way that he can hurt you, Martinez. I give you my word. Now, what can he do to you, Pedro, with a bunch of cops all around him? I'll call David in. All right, boy, bring him in. Claude, I want you to stand just inside the door here and let these men have a good look at you. Okay, sir. Is this the man who held you up, Mr. Martinez? Uh, uh, well... Oh, sure, that's the guy. He was in my pool hall with Pedro that night. Now, if you recognize him, don't be afraid to say so, Mr. Martinez. Si, senor. It is the man. Thank you, gentlemen. I won't detain you any longer. You don't think he'll come after me now, senor? I not only don't think so, I know he won't. Goodbye, gentlemen. Thank you again. Goodbye, Sheriff. Well, Claude, what have you got to say? I never saw those men before in my life. What? You mean to say they were lying? No, they're just mistaken. I wonder if you realize just what your position is, David. Every scrap of evidence is against you. There's not a single clue, not a single statement of witnesses that's been in your favor. Oh, why don't you confess? Well, why should I confess? Because there's nothing else left for you to do. Oh. Well, all right. I killed Carl Hardy. And robbed Pedro Martinez after threatening to kill him? Mm-hmm. Yes. Well, what did you do with the money and the watch you took from Hardy's pocket? I didn't take anything from Carl's pocket. That's a lie, and you know it. Well, well, there was a waitress I was going around with. I gave her money to help keep up her car. Helped with some of the payments, too, now and then. We went out together two or three times a week and had fun. And so you killed one man and robbed another just so you could take your girlfriend out. Did the girl know about this? No. Well, she just thought I had more money than I did. She didn't know anything about it. What do you suppose she'll think when she finds out? Well, I guess she'll be sorry the good times are over. Well, haven't you any remorse for what you've done, Claude? Oh, sure. It does seem a shame to kill a man and then get a little out of it. On the witness stand, however, David's detailed confession became a repudiated nightmare. He pleaded, Not guilty, Your Honor, by reason of insanity. But District Attorney Engel had other ideas. Now you claim, David, that you don't remember anything... From the time you stopped the car until you found yourself standing by the prone body of Carl Hardy. That's right. If you couldn't remember, why did you think you had killed him? Well, because I had a gun in my hands and there wasn't anybody else there. And you claim you're too insane to know right from wrong. Hmm? Yes, sir. Why did you throw your gun away and burn your gloves? So they, so they couldn't get me into trouble. Was that the reason you tried to get the blood off your shoes and clothing? Yes. And that was the reason you threatened to kill Martinez, keep him from telling on you? Yes. Then you knew you'd done wrong. Yes. Then you do know the difference between right and wrong. Yes. That's all. Sweet rest. <laughs> Just a moment, we shall present concluding facts regarding tonight's story. It's human nature when you find an exceptional value to tell your friends about it. Whether it be a cafe that serves for excellent food, or the store where quality is high and prices are low. And so you folks who have discovered the superiority of all perfectly organic cracks, obey that impulse to tell your friends about this great new motor fuel. 
the gasoline that is first in public service and should be first in yours. David was found guilty of Judge Sane and sentenced to die in the gas chamber of San Quentin. Here is another story of the losing nature of crime. Broadcasting System.